You're listening to Travel Tales with Virgil. Hello, Fergal O'Keefe here and you're very welcome to the podcast. We can't physically travel right now, but there's nothing to stop us armchair travelling and hearing great travel stories. Before we start this week's episode, I want to let you know that we have a special bonus episode out this Thursday. It's a US election special called What's the Matter with America? It's a great chat, very topical and great fun with a Republican and a Democrat. So I highly recommend it. Today, we have the Irish sports broadcaster Con Murphy. And I can't wait to share with you his amazing tales. So I'm hopping straight to the interview now. Hi, Con. Thanks very much for doing this podcast. You've been a broadcaster on television and radio for over 30 years now, 20 years in RTE. We're in, during that time, you did an awful lot of sport. Every know you from Sports Sunday, every Sunday listen to you on the radio. And you would have done an awful lot of travels, I'm sure, going to sports events around the world during that time, wouldn't you? To be honest with you, I have been blessed. Somebody actually in a, an article last week described me as a veteran broadcaster and when you talk about 30 years there it it kind of frightens me almost but I have been so lucky in that time because I one of the things I love doing is traveling and one of the things about that job is that you do get to travel and you get to see amazing things and you know when I tell people that I've been to six Olympics already it's not quite the I think Jimmy McGee went to 11 or something like that so I have a bit of catching up to do yes but you know, to get to go to places, whether it's, you know, Beijing, Sydney, Rio, for what is the biggest sports event every four years. It's just amazing getting to the the World Cup when Ireland were there in, in 2002 in Japan and Korea. I don't think as a fan, I would have been able to afford to go on a trip like that because Japan and Korea, well, particularly Japan, was so expensive. But to actually get paid to go to something like that was just incredible. And and you get to see places and meet people that you just would never meet in your normal travels. So from that point of view, when people say to me, Jesus, you have a great job, you know, you're so lucky. That's the the, the sort of the, the icing on the cake in terms of the job, the getting to travel, to see the world. It's just been fantastic. And I'm, I'm right in saying I know you that you love travel, that even personally as well as professionally, you know, you enjoy the whole experience. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm one of the strange people who, like, I, I love airports. I love going to the airport. If somebody says to me, oh, you're going to have to get to the airport three hours before the flight. I actually don't mind that. I, I love the airport. I love the buzz of an airport. The queues for the security and stuff can be a bit of a pain in the ass sometimes. But in general, I love the vibe at an airport. A lot of people are, you know, going on holidays. They're going somewhere interesting. You get to see all humanity in an airport. And I love flying. I love being on airplanes. Um, and again, there are some people who'd be nervous on a flight or some people who just don't like being cooped up in an airplane. But for me, I just I love the whole the whole experience of traveling. So for me, traveling is not a chore and never has been. I think I was about six, maybe when I went on my first flight. And in those days, we were going to the Canaries. Uh, there weren't flights like there are nowadays where there's a flight every day in those days. It was like one flight a week and the flights used to go at one o'clock in the morning or something like that because they were chartered planes and stuff. But even then, the excitement as a six-year-old of getting on an airplane and going off somewhere to like somewhere completely different to what I was used to, somewhere hot for starters. But even just the smells and the, the view, everything, you know, being away from Ireland, I loved. And so that's carried on I've, from, from a very young age. I've always loved airports, train stations, anything like that. I just, I love traveling. 
as much as being there. It's the planning is, and the airport and know you're going and it's a holiday. And, 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 and as you said, look, even looking around at other people and wondering where they're going and yeah, what their story yeah. is. And I love that. What about when you're traveling with a bunch of kids, is it a much different experience? Because that's <laughs> yeah. not something that I've had to do. <laughs> I've had nephews and stuff with me, but um, I've never had like a bunch of young kids traveling. Do you know what? It, it's actually maybe it's exactly the same from it kind of but heightened. So it, it, mm. the anticipation is multiplied because you're watching the kids' excitement. But I have to say, I love that. It, it, it's it's a bit of work. It's like herding yeah. sheep in an airport trying to keep <laughs> them together. But once the bags are in, then the excitement is is exactly the same, but nearly multiplied. Yeah. You know, I have to say. Yeah, I think I was lucky because when I was a kid. Apart from the odd, you know, trip to the Canaries or whatever, um, I used to go to a lot of football matches with my dad when Ireland were playing, say, in, in Wembley or in Amsterdam or Brussels or whatever. So as a young, like 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 year old kid, I was getting to see these cities and um, because I was quite young, it wasn't just a trip where we were going to sit in a pub for two days and watch the match. Like we actually did go to places like museums and walk along the canals. And um, it was a really eye-opening experience. Um, we had one experience in Amsterdam, actually, we speaking of walking along the canals, myself and my dad, and I'm about 12 or whatever. And we kind of ramble into the red light district. It was during the day, so it wasn't too bad, but... Uh, <laughs> A guy who had been painting our house the previous week was walking towards us and it's like, ah, how are you, Mr. Murphy? You know, how's things? You know, and it was just funny to meet him in the red light district. At <laughs> um, but uh, like for, for any kids, and I think you're right, I think for kids, there is the excitement and the anticipation of traveling, but also there is kind of an educational side to it as well. And like to get to see Europe. So tell us your, your travels when you were with RTE. When was your first um, Olympics? First one was uh, Atlanta, uh, 1996, the, the Michelle de Bruyne Olympics, and she won all her medals. And that was, of all of the Olympics that I've been at, that was actually probably the biggest shambles. It was so badly organized. It was really disastrous. Like Our hotel was about two miles, I think, from the airport, and they had brought in all these bus drivers from Central America and stuff who didn't know Atlanta at all. So, you know, having flown to Atlanta, you're kind of tired. You just want to get to the hotel, put your bags down. But the drivers got lost. We were driving around for about an hour. I think Jimmy McGee was on a different bus and he took, I think it was like two and a half hours to get from the airport to our hotel. Um, what should have taken 10 minutes, you know? And he was like a, a raging bull when he arrived in the it was funny, actually, we flew with Delta Airlines. So if had we flown with Aer Lingus, I think, you know, the crew would all know who Jimmy McGee was. He's obviously such a well-known face. But with Delta, it was American crew. And Jimmy on the flight was wearing black trousers and an open black shirt. And he was going around the airplane as he would, you know, chatting with everybody. How are you? On, how's it? So when they were coming out with the trolley for the cabin crew, said to him, "Excuse me, father, can, can you move away?" They just assumed he was a priest because he was wearing all black. Uh, so that he was far from a, a, a priest, I can tell you. But that was the Olympics as well, where very sadly um, the bomb went off outside our broadcasting, uh, and two people died, and and one of our crew, Michael Slaven, who was covering the show jumping and. Uh, 
But he was there when the bomb went off and everybody who was in the vicinity, he wasn't hurt, thankfully, but uh, everybody who was in the vicinity had to stay there and they were all questioned by the police. He was kept on a bus overnight um, while they were quest going through all the people. And so that was a pretty shocking uh, time. And obviously after that, security was ramped up in the areas around uh, any Olympic cordoned off area, you know. So overall, um, Atlanta, of all the Olympics I've been at, was probably the, the worst, just in terms of organization and stuff. Um, but it got better after that. You know, Sydney was amazing. Athens, incredible. Beijing, London was, London was a surprise for me how good it was. Actually, I didn't expect it to be as good as it was. And, and then Rio, amazing place to be as well. So oh, it's... it's you know, it, they're all very different. Is there, is, does each Olympics have, has its own flavor? Yeah, I think it does. I think you're right. Um, it, it does and it doesn't in that uh, when you go to an Olympics in any, generally we don't see a huge amount of what's going on outside of the sports arenas and the um, broadcast, the IBC, they call it the International Broadcasting Centre, which is, the IBC is, for me, is always one of the most interesting things in an Olympics because it's where every radio and television station have their studios and their broadcasting from uh in this huge cavernous building um so you'd be in the queue for a cup of coffee and there'd be somebody from jamaica in front of you and somebody from china behind you and tom brokaw would be ahead of you you know all and obviously you'd have all the sports uh competitors coming in for interviews and stuff so you'd be walking down the corridor and shaquille o'neal i remember walked past me i remember thinking he's tall <laughs> uh, I, I think that the difference is just the the vibe like in London there was almost like a it's almost as if all the volunteers it was drummed into them that we have to make this the happy games so you know if you were queuing at a, at a bus stop where for the buses to bring you to venues there's, there's always a volunteer there and they were invariably nice you know just incredible incredibly friendly where are you from oh you're from Ireland have you any have you any competitors going today there were just chatty and, and created a nice, friendly vibe, even though obviously the security was very tight and stuff, but even the security people were very friendly, you know? So that was London, whereas if you compare that to say Beijing, where the security people were doing a job, most of them wouldn't have spoken English, so it was just much more functional. There was less of a, a friendly vibe, although having said that, in the hotel in Beijing uh, that we were staying in, all the staff were amazing. and so, so generally, they all try and put on this happy face and try and create a, a, a vibe that's, that's happy and positive. In Beijing, they did things like at the side of the road where it would normally be muddy, they sprayed it green so it looked like grass. I mean, they go to those kind of lengths just to paint places in as positive a, a way as they can so so yeah i think there is a different different sense and a different feeling from each games but overall the when i think back of the the different games that i've been at the the main thing is that it's just an amazing coming together of the world <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why i absolutely love going to the olympics you know i just i i'm a huge fan would you recommend it to people as, as an event to go to a hundred percent, one hundred percent. Tickets can be expensive. Uh, I mean, for example, Tokyo this year, just the cost of getting there. Obviously, hotels all bump up their prices. So Tokyo would be a tough one. I mean, even for family of competitors and stuff who all want to be there, uh, trying to get tickets for the events can be a very expensive, and then getting there and, and hotels 
really expensive. But say, for example, in four years' time, Paris. For Irish fans, Paris obviously is very accessible. Um, and I would absolutely uh, recommend, if you get a chance to, to go along, do it, because you won't regret it. I mean, I don't... Some, I kind of forget sometimes how lucky I am that, you know, when I'm doing a, say in Rio, I was doing commentary on the 100 metres and uh, there's Usain Bolt down below me. And I've, I've, I'm literally on the finishing line, best seats in the house. Uh, when Sonia Sullivan won her silver medal in Sydney, I remember standing, Yvonne Judge, the journalist, was with us as well. And I was with Yvonne and... Sonia had just crossed the line to finish second. And we, again, were right on the finishing line, about eight rows back. I mean, like, better seats than Sebastian Coe was sitting in. And I remember turning around to Yvonne and saying, this is bloody mad. You know, we're getting paid to, to be here and to be in the best seats in the house. Um, and for things like, I, I don't really get um, opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies. The, the only one that really absolutely blew me away was in Beijing. I don't know if you remember, the opening ceremony in Beijing was like nothing I have ever, ever seen before or since. It was incredible. But tickets for those, uh, particularly opening and closing events, they can go for like $2,000 each. Um, and I, I can't think, how, I, there was a couple I left early. I think in Athens, halfway through it, I just said, ah, I'm going back to the hotel. <laughs> you know, I don't want to get stuck in the, the crowds outside afterwards. Um, but having said that, like to, to be at an event where an Irish person is competing and in with the chance of a medal, um, I would say if you get the chance, absolutely go there, for it. I have friends who went, a good few friends who went to London and the thing they said, you know, they went without, they might have a ticket for one thing, but then they ended up going to taekwondo or something and yeah. going to sports, which is kind of what everybody does when they're watching on TV as well, yeah. once every four years. But that's, they're the things that they really loved because you know, they go behind some small country that has someone competing yeah. and they loved it just as much. Yeah. I think that's... Yeah, I mean, that's... I, I, every Olympics I go to, I always go to one sports event that I've never been to before, whether it's like a handball match or beach volleyball, um, which was great. Uh, you know, just some, as you say, whether it's taekwondo, you know, you might go to something like Greco-Roman wrestling, which you'd never in a million years otherwise um but it's it is a great experience and those tickets tend to be much easier to get obviously and tell us um out of those all those olympics that you've been to is there is there an event that pops into your head something most memorable there's a few that will stick in my mind that night in sydney uh when sonia won her silver medal the atmosphere in the stadium that night i mean they're great sports fans in australia and they really know their stuff and that night, Kathy Freeman was running in the 400 meters and she was the big, the golden girl from, from Australia. And the buzz and the excitement in the stadium uh, before her race and after her race, that night of track and field was electric, like unforgettable. That was something. And both Kathy and Sonia kind of had the same, the expectation was huge. So when they, yes. when they achieved it, it made it even more special. You know? Yeah, I mean, she was, Cathy Freeman was incredible and, and she was, it was kind of memorable because she was wearing that strange outfit where like, so it kind of was quite memorable. But it also when she won her medal, I think one of the first things she did was she collected the Aboriginal flag 
I think that was a real statement by her. Obviously, she was representing Australia, but she was also representing the Aboriginal people, which I kind of moved me. Uh, I thought that was great. And obviously, then when Sonia won her silver that night as well, that was a night that will always, always uh, stick in my mind. Other ones, I mean, you've got to say Katie Taylor uh, winning her medal in, in London. That was incredible. That 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 day was just very special it was I mean she was on a hiding to nothing in a way if she didn't win, like just the expectation was so high obviously again a bit like Paris London was such an easy place for Irish fans to get to that they managed to get tickets by hook or by crook and so it was like there was a football match type atmosphere in the stadium and because it's a again a small cavernous indoor stadium the noise was incredible I always remember actually that when Katie was fighting now, David Cameron uh, was in the row in front of me. Literally, I could pat him on the shoulder and say, how are you, Dave? And I was thinking to myself, you know, security obviously is very tight and everybody is checked going in, but I still kind of felt I could have given him a clip on the ear, no problem, <laughs> <laughs> which is why I'm, I was, I'm not in, in jail. But that was another really memorable one. I, I, there's a few, I mean, in Rio, being in the stadium, watching Usain Bolt, because I, I, I remember George Hamilton actually did the commentary on the 100 metres final and I remember saying to George you know this is a this guy is a, a legend an absolute legend and here we are to see him finishing off his Olympic career you know and there's been a good few you know uh, for next year then you know Tokyo you were supposed to go this year weren't you that was tough I was yeah and everything was ready to rock and roll and suddenly COVID came along and knocked it all on the head which you know was kind of a bit devastating that I was dying for it to happen and I'm booked for next year, for next summer. I would be flipping a coin at this point, though, to see whether it happens or not. I, I, I have a funny feeling it will go ahead, but I think it could be a situation like we have at the moment where the events go ahead, but the crowds won't be allowed in. Or if they are allowed in, they'll be allowed in in hugely reduced numbers. So um, I saw a clip that you had before you put on your phone from Thomas Barr. Where was that? What, what event was that? At? Like, that was the, the, the final of the 400 metres hurdles in Rio. And again, um, George being the kind of the senior commentator, he was doing um, the, any final that involved an Irish person. He was doing that. And he had David Gillick with him as well as, as co-commentator. So I would have been, after that race, I would have been doing the next race, whatever it was. I actually can't remember what it was. It was at a bit of a loose end. And I thought it was a, chance that Barr might get a medal especially um, one of the athletes outside him was disqualified um, so that was one less competitor to, to have to beat so I just thought I'll record George here this this could be a hist- you know a historic medal for Ireland and it would be nice for George to have his own um, copy of this uh, video so I, I videoed it on my phone and obviously it was so close and yet so far but I just thought I'd pass this video on to George so he'd have it on his phone for, for time immemorial. But actually, uh, the guys back in Dublin heard that I had done this video. And so they, they used it, I think, in the, the broadcast uh, later. And I think they actually used it in promos for forthcoming sports events and stuff as well. So it was nice for George to have it. And um, it was just something I did off the cuff, you know. But, Lovely, because you, you never see good. that. Do you know what I mean? You, you captured the excitement of the commentator because when you hear their voice, you kind of, 
you know, you forget how natural that excitement is. So when you yeah. see it, you realize, wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I, it was a good little insight. That excitement is genuine. And I suppose as well, you're kind of caught up by, by the, the mood in the stadium. You know, it, it lifts you as well, which, which is another reason why if there's no fans in Tokyo, It'd be a real downer, you know. know. You're, you're, of course, known for doing Monday Night Soccer and RTE and so- lots of soccer broadcasting. Yeah. Would that be your first love, soccer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think I'd have to say, yeah. And it probably goes back to when I was a kid, you know, I was going to matches from the age of three or four with uh, dad. Then as I got a bit older, we started going to matches around Europe and stuff. So yeah, I'm one of the rare breed where I'd be more worried about the League of Ireland than the Premier League in England. You've been to soccer stadiums all over the world. Do you have, is there one that stands out, one or two that you particularly That's a good question. Like for football matches now, there must be, you know, like, like, did you go to New Camp or? Yeah, yeah, I've been there. Uh, I've been to there several times. I've been both in Barcelona for a Barcelona-Real Madrid match and I've been in Madrid for a Real Madrid-Barcelona match. And they're incredible occasions. Uh, And you're right, those stadiums are just, you know, 90,000 people, the noise. And the thing about those games in Spain is they only allow for the away team, maybe in a stadium of 90,000, there might be a thousand away fans maybe 500 so it's totally home team and it's the same in both you know in either way so it's not one team getting an advantage over the other the noise in those stadiums for a derby match like that unbelievable I mean the hair would literally stand up on the back of your neck it's incredible those two actually you're right those two stadiums are amazing and in terms of atmosphere another brilliant stadium if you ever get a chance to go is in Seville where Sevilla play. It's a smaller stadium. It's about maybe 50,000, 45,000. But they're maybe the most passionate fans, certainly in Spain. I mean, you might go to Greece or somewhere like that and find more crazy fans. But in terms of passion and noise and intensity in a stadium, that's an amazing... uh, And Seville is an amazing town, isn't it? Oh, it's... I would say Seville would be in my top three cities in, in Europe, if not the world. I just think it's incredible that old air the, where the cathedral is and the little windy streets with the smell of food and people standing outside having a glass of wine uh, there's a, a rooftop bar in a hotel right beside that cathedral actually and it's, it'll be one of my favorite bars in in europe i mean it's it's just uh, it, you know the carlsberg ad it's it's a bit like that like just everything about the place is beautiful the setting the Oh, the weather, everything. Absolutely gorgeous. I was there two years ago with friends from college, so I didn't get to do any of the, you know, like the cathedral and stuff. Yeah. And so I'd love to go back. I'd love to go back and do their Cordoba Granada together mm. as a bunch. Incredible. It's, it's it, that uh, beautiful part of the world. The, one of the things about Seville, about Seville as well is that the main part of the city is very walkable. Like, you know, it's, it's quite small. And so it's not like one of those cities where you have to get a taxi or a tube or something from A to B. Like you can walk around Seville very easily. And Granada, amazing. You know, the Alhambra uh, is like one of the wonders of the world in a way, you know. So if you do do that trip, you have a treat in store. Do you love Tenerife? Uh, I, I love it. I mean, I again, if I won the lottery, I think I'd be spending at least half the year there. You know, just the climate is 
so good. It's not too hot during the summer. Like it doesn't get to the kind of meltingly hot that you get in the south of Spain. And during the winter, it's 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 mild. You know, it's really it's, it's a nice place to grow old. I would say. So, um, is there any sporting event you haven't been to that you would like to go to? Ooh, that's a good one. That is a very good one. Um, can I have a few? Of course. <laughs> Uh, I'd love to go to a Super Bowl final just to see. The, I, I'm not a huge American football fan. I mean, I'd watch it a bit on, on a Sunday night. But just to see the razzmatazz around the whole thing, I wouldn't be a great aficionado of the game. So once I was in the stadium to sample the atmosphere, that would be part of it. Um, so I think that would be one. I'd, I'd love to go to something like the Melbourne Cup. Like I like horse racing. I've never been to Melbourne. People tell me it's a brilliant city. Um, the National and, Day there. You know, the whole city gets involved. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and again, it is one that I think probably even the whole country. You're right. Yeah. I was in Australia one year. It was the Olympics year. And I was in Broome, yeah. Western Australia. And for the day of the Melbourne Cup in the pub, everyone was kind of dressed up and as if it was their town and this was on the other side of australia it was quite amazing yeah yeah that's that, yeah I'd, I'd love to do that and maybe i mean i've never been to a world cup final so i think because football is such a big thing for me i'd love to go to a world cup final you know i've been to some champions league finals i was there the night zidane scored that amazing volley in hamden park that was incredible but uh, yeah a world cup final i think would be would be right up there probably the top of my list actually and oh, the other one, I, and I, I've never been to Argentina, but I would love to go to a Boca Juniors River Plate derby match. You know, again, just having been to Barca against Real Madrid, I kind of think that's almost as big a derby game as you're going to get in, in Europe. But in South America, I think that one would be, you know, I've seen it on TV a few times. It just looks mad, you know. So uh, I'd love to go to Argentina anyway. So that, yeah, I think that would be up there as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like I've traveled a huge amount, and I still kind of think, geez, I've never been to, I've never been to a rugby match. I've never been to New Zealand actually, but I'd love to go to a rugby match in New Zealand. Not necessarily like Lions or anything like that. Just a, a even a club game, just to because I think that's so much of a part of the fabric of that country. Again, that year two thousand, I went to see um, New Zealand against Australia in the Olympic Stadium. So it was one hundred and ten thousand people. So that was yeah, the biggest yeah. game ever. And I think the score was something like 43-42. Lomu wow. scored in injury time. It was just the most electric atmosphere I was at, at any yeah. game. You did um, golf as well. So you, you did the Ryder Cup when it was in Ireland. Would you have done other golf? or do you? Yeah, I, I presented the Irish Open golf uh, on RTE for a number. I, I was doing it the day um, Shane Lowry won his first ever tournament. He was still an amateur back in those days. Um, I still remember that as being the coldest I think I've ever been at any sports event. Whatever way they built our presentation position, it was on the side of the 18th fairway and the wind just, there was no uh, doors or walls or anything. We were very open and the wind just whistled through our, it was like a wind tunnel. And I remember having about 20 layers on and still freezing, but it was, that was an amazing day when Shane, one like from our point of view the story was brilliant if you're presenting a, an irish open and there's an irish player competing near the top you'll always get much more viewers and stuff so that was a 
that was the start of a, a fairy story for, for Shane Lowry. And so it was great to be there. The, the Ryder Cup was a different one in that we were doing on-course commentary for our radio uh, coverage of the event. And so we were out on the course with a pro following a match and stuff. And uh, the access we had, like we were, you know, Tiger Woods would be taking a putt and he'd literally be six feet in front of you, you know, getting inside the ropes and getting up that close was incredible. It was one of those ones where because you were so close to the uh, player, but it was radio, so you couldn't stay quiet. You had to say something. So you used to hold um, a folder up in front of your mouth and kind of whisper at Tiger Woods, eight feet from the hole, up here, you know. Uh, and you were always afraid that you were going to disturb the player and, and try and make sure that you were downwind from them a little techniques like that but that was great I mean, it added to the tension on the radio the whispering you know oh, when when uh, oh god that was amazing again like one of those events that you kind of think geez i'm going to remember this forever you know i remember walking down i think um, i was following darren clark's match darren was in a position to to win it for for europe we were walking down again as i say inside the ropes like kind of cheek by jowl with the players walking down sergio garcia was beside me and he wasn't his match was over, but he was all exciting, a typical surgery, you know, real having the crack and it was great. But the the, the noise and the, the vibe from day one, from like as soon as that thing started, I said, Europe are going to win this. We're just, you could just feel an energy from the crowd that was very unusual at a golf event. And I, that's the only Ryder Cup I've been to, but I can understand why people who go to it all the time love it so much. Your partner Lorraine, she works for Lingus, doesn't she? So that's like a golden ticket for uh, someone who loves <laughs> traveling. <laughs> well, yeah, she she does, and I mean, it, the, it's it's very hard work. In fairness to her, wow. uh, they work long hours and um, not so quite so much long hours at the moment because of COVID. But hopefully, at some point, that's going to pass. But mm. um, yeah, it does. I mean, you have the benefit then of the. Um, reduced rate travel and stuff um you'd be on standby so you're not guaranteed your seat and there's always that little bit of stress but um, it means that getting to places like america becomes much more affordable and you know we'd go to uh america in in a normal year probably five or six times you know just fantastic so you love it there obviously America. Yeah, I was thinking about um, places I love to go, and and America would be right up there. I mean, just because of the diversity, you know, you, L.A., San Francisco, the West Coast, I love uh, Las Vegas. Go there every year. <laughs> <laughs> Palm Springs, just for that warm, beautiful desert heat um, in the spring and the autumn, it's just an amazing place to go. And then like New York, Boston, Chicago. The you, I could spend a lifetime traveling around America. There's still so much of it I haven't seen. The only thing is at the moment, because of the guy who's in charge, the, the president, uh, I wouldn't be a huge fan of his. And um, I, so I haven't been going as much. I just don't want to be there while he's in charge. No. Uh, obviously, COVID has put a stop to that anyway at the moment. But um Oh, I love America. Yeah. Notice the difference there in the last few, this last three or four years then. You know what I mean? With an attitude to people or not. Or 
Yeah, I mean, I actually haven't experienced that too much personally, I have to say. Um, I mean, generally, when we go there, we'd be in either LA, Las Vegas, East Coast, whatever. Um, so in, in our trips, which might only be a week long or whatever, it hasn't impacted that much. It's just what I see on CNN. <laughs> uh, I would hate to be living there at the moment. It's the, the society looks like it's becoming very, very divided. And it's going to take a long time, I think, for that divide to, to come back together, which is, I remember being in LA before the election, about six months before the election in 2016. And we were in a shop and the woman who had this very funky clothes shop in LA was saying that if Trump got in, she was going to leave the country. She just could not bear the thought of living in a, a country with him as president. And I'd say she wasn't alone. I'd say there were plenty of people who were thinking along those lines as well. Um, obviously, California would tend to be very democratic and uh, quite liberal. And so somebody like Trump just yeah. wouldn't be popular there at all. As a traveler uh, going to America, I, I have to admit, um, it hasn't really impacted on me, other than the fact that when you go through um, customs in Dublin airport, there's a picture of Trump up on the wall and that it's a bad start to any trip. <laughs> exactly. And if you had to pick a city or a place in America as your favorite out of all, because you've been to a lot. Oof, it's really, really, really hard. Um, I think I'd probably, if I won the lottery tomorrow and somebody said you can buy a house in America now, where would you buy? I'd probably go for Santa Monica in, in LA. It's just beautiful by the sea, great climate, lovely people, great. Just if you go for a walk there, it's just fantastic. Um, it'd be a close one though, Fergal. I mean, I love Vegas. I just love the vibe in Las Vegas. And I know a lot of people say you can only go to Vegas for three or four days and you've, you've, that's enough. I completely disagree with that. I think there's so much to see there and so much to do. I love San Francisco. New York would get a bit cold for me, um, but as a place to visit, it's just, again, you know, you could spend two weeks in New York and still only, you know, chip the top of the iceberg. There's so much to do and see there. But if push came to shove, I think I'd probably go for LA just for the, the vibe, the weather, the food, the walks, the fresh air. Well, it's normally fresh air when the fires aren't burning in the mountains. Yeah. Uh, um, but it'll be a close run thing because again Palm Springs uh, weather there spring and autumn absolutely gorgeous I had an aunt who lived there and we used to visit her and, and that's how we kind of got to know Palm Springs and we both love it absolutely love it great restaurants lovely bars there's, there's, there's kind of a myth about Palm Springs that it's a place that old people go to that's and I think it, my head. that would have been the way you know a lot of the yeah. old movies stars and stuff in LA in the you know 30s and 40s and 50s would have gone to Palm Springs because the weather was so good during the winter but actually it's changed quite a lot we've noticed a huge change in the 15 or 20 years that we've been going there it's much more much younger now um, and great selection of bars and restaurants and all that kind of stuff I should really be working for their tourist board <laughs> But it's a, yeah, it's a great place to be. If you're in that neck of the woods, definitely you should spend a few days there. The last question is from Emer. So what it is, is if you close your eyes and take four deep breaths 
allow yourself to think of your happy place from your travels and where would that be? A real Emer question. Oh, that's, just a, that's a good one. That is a very good question. Um, um, can I pick two? Of course, I did. Yeah. I think the two places I would pick, if, if I'm closing my eyes and just imagining absolute kind of tranquility and beauty, um, Puerto Vallarta in Mexico, um, there's a hotel we stayed in, which was beside the beach, beside the sea, and it's, it's in a kind of a circular bay. And down first thing in the morning, like maybe half past eight in the morning, just the sun is coming up. The water in the pool is absolutely still. The seawater, which is just over the edge of the pool, absolutely still. The palm trees kind of uh, silhouetted with the sun coming up and just lying down there, absolute heaven. I mean, I can only describe it as heaven. At that time of the day, there's nobody else down by the pool. I love early mornings anyway for things like sunrises and that. And I can picture that in my mind now. And um, they used to play this very low key uh, kind of, I was going to say chill out music, but it's almost like just background music, just very low, not, not intrusive, but just adding to the atmosphere. That, that was, I mean, Puerto Vallarta in Mexico is somewhere I'd recommend We've been three times now at this point. Um, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton shot a movie there, Night of the Iguana, and they fell in love with the place so much that they bought a house. They bought, actually bought two houses. Because when they used to have a row, he'd go to the other house across the road. Um, but it is a beautiful place, Puerto Vallarta. Um, it's Rick Steen's favourite place too. You know that, that, is that, it? Yeah. That's interesting. It's his, and he's a well-travelled man now, I can yeah. tell you. So yeah, that says some, that's very interesting. We only went there. We, we were actually in LA and it was February and the weather was bad. Uh, and we looked at the weather forecast and the next three days, it was going to be gray and rainy and a bit cold. And I just said to Lorraine, I don't want to stay around here for three days in the rain. You know, you can't even go for a walk. Or... So we, we literally went out to the airport at LAX and we went into the, the building and went up to the guy and said where can we go that's warm and sunny at the moment and he said well I've had three honeymoons in Puerto Vallarta and I love it so <laughs> we said okay we give it a go and it was only a couple of hours flight from LA obviously from Ireland it's a much longer journey but um, it's that, that, that picture I have in my mind of that flat calm water the sun coming up the trees, everything. That was heavenly. And the other one, if I could pick two, would be um, Bali. Um, we went there about four or five years ago now. And again, just that early morning feeling of, you know, tranquility, total calm, beautiful beach beside the, the pool, palm trees. Um, gorgeous place just beautiful temperature i think we went there in august and it was a, a lovely time of the year to go uh, weather wise um and bali of all the places we've been i would say you know the people were off the scale they were so nice it was spiritual aren't they you know oh, 
gorgeous people. Absolutely. Well, actually, the only thing I would say is once you get past the airport where everybody's trying to get you into their taxi and there's a bit of hustling going on at the airport, I think. Beyond that, um, in the hotel, on the streets, just everybody was so, so, so nice. Um, that's a, another bit of heaven on earth, I think, you know, and not easy to get to quite, you know, it's an expensive trip. But if anybody has the opportunity to go there, I'd so recommend it. Just, ah, uh, absolutely. You went to when you were there. We did, yeah, yeah. The monkeys actually robbed our lunch. <laughs> <laughs> we were walking back to the car. It was one of these ones where, that's the other thing about Bali. I think everything is very, very reasonable once you're there. You know, it's very cheap. So we got a guy to drive us around um, for the day and, you know, wasn't expensive at all. Lovely guy, real nice, spoke good English. And we were having gone in and seen all the monkeys in the, the habitat and stuff. We were walking back to the car with just some stuff for the driver, some sandwiches and, you know, bottle of water and whatever. And as we were walking back to the car, the monkeys literally came out of the trees and grabbed the plastic bag and scarpered. Um, but I, I mean, speaking of spiritual, I mean, what an amazing uh, place Ubud is. And, the paddy fields and stations and stuff. Yeah. Oh, we, we went to the place where they make that um, coffee from the beans that the those animals eat and then yeah. poop out. Um, which, which, by the way, when you're in Las Vegas, a cup of that coffee costs eighty dollars, um, but in Bali it's five dollars. So <laughs> if you're going to eat the coffee that the beans have been pooped out by the animal, what Bali, does it taste like? I've never had that. It was very nice, beautiful actually. It was lovely, yeah. And they showed the, they showed us the process. So the outside of the bean is taken off before the inside is baked and everything. So you're not getting any uh, any additional flavors to your coffee apart from the bean. Um, but oh god, it, I remember sitting again there having coffee, and you you know you had the layered landscape around your beautiful mountains and stuff. And thinking this is as close to heaven on earth as you're going to to find. I mean, it's just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. You know, really, really nice. Thank you. That's a gorgeous way to finish this. And they were amazing travel tales. I really appreciate it. And I love listening to them. I think we could go for another five hours if we wanted. Big to. time. <laughs> <laughs> we so could. Much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks a million, Virgil. I really enjoyed that chat and we could have gone on for hours more with all these tales. I would ask you to please subscribe so a new episode will appear in your library every week. I would also appreciate if you could leave a rating and review as it helps others to discover this podcast. Take care and keep dreaming of future travels. Travel Tales with Virgo.